Peace be to you. In the Cabo Marino. Let us begin with a question. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Curiously Catholic, an Evangelion production. And this is the last episode of 2020, the most horrible year of them all. Uh, but in this podcast, we are going to be picking the brains of uh, Catholic enthusiasts, trying to get to the bottom of how to truly live as a Catholic in contemporary times. My name is Dominic Malgeri, and in this episode, we have Anna Abraham. Uh, thank you for coming on, Anna. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Um, I... I... I'm, it, it's good to be part of your last episode. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. Well, maybe good or bad. Maybe people might not pick it up next year after me. But no, um, no, it's good to be here and good to be chatting with you. We, I've, we have had some interesting discussions in the past, so yes. good to good to sort of get into that again. Okay. Yeah. So originally from uh, Pukekohe, right? That's correct. Yeah. So represent all those from Pukekohe. Um, <laughs> Yeah, first place I landed when I came to New Zealand was Pukekohe. Didn't even know New Zealand existed, and all of a sudden I was in uh, in Pukekohe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now, now where are you in the world? Uh, I live in Canberra at the moment in Australia. Very good. And yeah. where's that in relation to Melbourne? Because that's the only place I know. Oh, okay. Um, so Canberra is well. It has its own territory, Australia Capital Territories. Um, it's the, it's based in New South Wales. It's kind of in between Sydney and Melbourne, but closer to Sydney. It's about three-hour drive to Sydney. All right. Six or seven-hour drive to Melbourne. Okay, so, so reasonably close. Yeah. For Australia. For Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I actually went to university in old North Wales, uh, or actual <laughs> North Wales. I don't know uh, how you you would represent it. Um, but for those of you uh, uh, that are watching that don't know who Anna is, uh, Anna, would you give a bit of a background as to um, what you do and and who you are? Uh, so um, at the moment, I, I I am mainly a housewife. That's mm. uh, my, my my main job. Um, but I have been involved with. Um, uh, Catholic education and formation in, in the adult realm. So um, I've studied a bit of theology and taught at a theological college. Um, and currently I'm actually uh, teaching part-time um, for the permanent diaconate program in the Sydney Archdiocese. Mm. So it's, it's just a very part-time role, um, but looking after their liturgical formation. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of a nice little um, uh, thing to keep me going every week. Yeah. So, yeah. So you must be a pretty well, um, I guess, educate yourself in theology if you're teaching the permanent diaconate. So I have a Bachelor of Theology mm-hmm. um, and I also have a licentiate in theology, specialising in liturgical theology. So um, I did start my PhD and worked on it for a number of years, but it's on the back burner at the moment. Right, right. Other things are, uh, are um, more pressing, I suppose, at the moment. So Okay, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, what's a licentiate? Where do you get one? Um, so a licentiate is a postgraduate degree. Um, it's kind of like a master's, really. Okay. Um, but it's more of a European um, 
title, I suppose. Okay. Um, so I got mine from uh, the University of the Holy Cross in Rome. Um, so I was there for two years and um, studying and, yeah, living so in Rome. That sounds amazing. The living in Rome was was pretty amazing. Just yeah. you know, having the Colosseum out the back door, basically, and being able to see it from you know my bedroom window and stuff yeah. like that was mind boggling. Um, the studies were pretty hard. I um, chose to study at a uni- university that um, taught in Italian, and I'd never uh, studied Italian before until I went to Italy. So. It was a bit of a struggle, um, a bit of a difficulty with the language, but yeah, yeah, muddle on through. Man, I can't even imagine. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm in uni yeah. at the moment, and like, if I well, I mean, most of the words are in Latin because it's you know science and <laughs> biology, yeah. but like, uh, <laughs> it does feel like another language anyway. And I can't imagine yeah. if the bits in between that were English <laughs> were a different language. I don't know what I'd do. Um, did you find that like because everything was in Italian you just picked up real quickly or no (laughs) I um I don't know it was sort of one of those things that I didn't really take to the language very well um I did I lived with other people who mainly spoke English which wasn't particularly helpful um and I'm a bit of a perfectionist and so with learning a language I think the the key is just to just to try and do your best and even if you make lots of mistakes but I I just found that very hard to do so I wasn't as adventurous um, as I thought I might be um, when when push came to shove so yeah yeah, it was it it was um, it was hard going and I I mean in the theological world it's not too bad because certainly like church documents and most of your sort of major theological books are translated into many different languages so you could always um you know follow um but i did have a couple of classes where all the literature was either in italian or spanish and um i just had some really wonderful classmates who helped me um took pity on me um (laughs) so yeah and it got me through so Uh. Poor bilingual person. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't believe, I mean, you know, uh, New Zealand, I mean, I'd learned a little bit of Japanese when I was at school, a little bit of French and things like that. But, um, you know, in Europe, children grow up having yeah. two, three, four languages. And, mm, you know, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I've only ever been to Rome twice and it was never as a Catholic. I went uh, once just on a whim with a friend who she was travel, she was over from the States and she was going to travel around Europe. And then her friend got mumps and had to back out. And then she's like, I've got these tickets and I can't go on my own. So I was like, oh, I'll go with you. And so that's my first experience of Rome. And the second time was kind of like what led to me becoming a Catholic. I actually went on, I just tagged along on a pilgrimage, but mm-hmm. obviously for me, it was just a holiday. Um, but yeah, so like yeah, I just kind of tagged along, and I ended up going to lots of masses in the Saint Saint Peter's Basilica. Right, <laughs> and now I'm yeah. like, I did not engage in any of it. I'm like kind of kicking myself. <laughs> like, yeah, it's yeah. like okay, this is cool. I guess yeah. whatever. <laughs> just here with yeah. some friends. Um, but you know, it kind of leads me on to like you know the question we start every podcast with. You know, how did you become a Catholic? 
Um, or how do you become how you are? Were you cradle Catholic? Were you convert? Or was it a bit of both? Mm. So Rome actually, for me, plays an important part in my faith. Mm. I um, was a cradle Catholic. Uh, my parents, my mum, uh, her background is in the Anglican Church and my dad in the Catholic Church. And mum um, uh, converted to Catholicism when I was uh, at primary school or maybe just a bit before. Um, but both sides of the family were very, um, you know, took faith seriously. And so both sets of grandparents were very much involved in their faith and very prayerful people and um, had a real sort of um, passion to share the gospel and things like that as well. Um, So, yeah, I grew up in a family and we lived just across the road from the church. My parents still do. Um, So, you know, through primary school and high school and things like that, um, we were, you know, involved a lot in parish life. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I went through the, the normal difficulties as a teenager and um, particularly when I was 18, 19, I moved out of home to, to study at university and um, ended up not really going to Mass on a regular basis. And I sort of, I think, I never really stopped believing in God, but I, I lived like he didn't exist, basically. I think that was sort of how I... Um, how kind of things year, unfolded, uh, yeah. Your first taste of freedom, huh? Yeah, a little bit like that. Um, and but when I was when I was twenty, or sort of at the end of my second year at university, I I really I really felt a bit lost, and sort of was wondering what am I going to do with my life? I sort of had undertaken a course of studies which I really enjoyed, but I wasn't really sure where that was going to take me. And so I was sort of asking myself the big questions, like, who am I? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? And um, I decided to take a year out um, and stop study for a year. And I moved back home uh, to mum and dad's and decided I'd work for a year and save up a bit, bit of money and just kind of see what, you know, I might do. Mm. And so that was the year 2000. So um work out my age but um uh what happened that year was uh there was a world youth day event on in rome and so i you know living with mum and dad it's kind of normal you go to mass every weekend and every sunday and so i started going back to mass again and um and this opportunity came up for me to go to world youth day in rome and basically kind of like your experience of going to Rome um, for the first time, you know, my cousin wanted to go um, to the World Youth Day event, uh, but he was underage, so he needed a chaperone. And I was, I'm keen to go to Europe. I'll go, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but not really sort of going from a faith point of view. Mm. Um, but the whole process of getting there, first of all, because we had to fundraise. And yeah. um, I think at some stage I sort of felt in the midst of all the fundraising, it was really hard work actually, but a lot of people were so generous um, to me and to my cousin so that we could go. And I sort of thought, you know, I really need to take this seriously. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like this is not just an opportunity for a holiday um, because people are paying for you to go. And so, um, yeah, I think that was sort of the first time where I really started praying about those things. And, um, and the event itself was something that was just blew my mind Mm -hmm. Um, I think there was something like 2 million young people there um, and uh, it was so it was um, 
Pope John Paul II, and by that time he was pretty frail. Mm. But just the response of the, you know, whenever he was around, so like the young people just, they just went bananas. Mm. And he was like a rock star, you know, and um, just to meet other young people who were lived their faith and were really passionate about Christ. And um, I think it, I felt like it sort of perhaps reawakened the faith I had when I was sort of at the primary school age. Um, and, yeah, that sort of got the ball rolling for me mm. as far as sort of coming back to my faith and wanting to um, be an adult <laughs> in my faith as well. So, Oh, cool, cool. Um, just for those of you watching, if you have any questions you'd like to ask, and I don't, uh, please don't hesitate to uh, write below and we'll get to them at the end. Um, but I was just wondering, and I like you mentioned like that first beginning to pray, I guess, for the first time, would you say like it's actually mm. became a prayer of the heart rather than, mm. you know, just following the rubrics? Because um, mm. I remember like when I when I the year leading up to my conversion, people were saying just praying, you know you believe in God. And I was like, yeah. okay, God, I, uh, amen. You know, <laughs> I was like, yeah. do you exist? Yeah. Amen. Oh, I don't believe, but obviously it's not real. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was kind of my conversion. Like the last thing I did as a non-Catholic, I suppose, was I'm going to give this praying thing a go. And there was like mm. that real conversion of heart. That was where mm. it was. It's like, I'm actually going to try this. Yeah. Um, can you explain, can you describe what that was like for you, that change of heart? So I think there were two things. Um, so the first thing was I started going to Mass again on a regular basis. And while I was in Mass, I often was pretty distracted mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and not particularly sort of engaged with what was happening. But I started to experience when, when Mass was over and would be outside and everyone would be sort of hanging out and having a bit of a you know, post-Mass chat, uh, post I started sort of feeling like a real sort of joy and peace after going to Mass. And so that that kind of really struck me, I think. Mm. Um, and I was a little bit like, hmm, what's this? Um, and then uh, with our sort of progress of, you know, fundraising and trying to get to World Youth Day, we, we sort of had a few um, obstacles, a few hurdles uh, along the way. And my auntie actually gave me a novena to St. Jude never come across a novena before like my family were regular like we used to pray as a family daily yeah. when we were yeah. children but I'd never done a novena and well not that I could recall and uh, it took me a few attempts to be able to pray it nine days in a row right because right, yeah. I forget but um you know that after praying that it was it was answered like that the, you know everything sort of fell into place and so it was a real experience of sort of first of all that sort of joy and peace that God wants to give us. Um, and also of answered prayer as well. Um, mm. And so that sort of perseverance in prayer, um, I wasn't unfamiliar unfamiliar with praying and mm. certainly prayed a lot as a child and things like that. But it was sort of that um, sort of an awakening to its power, I think. And even mm. its power, like my experience in Mass, was without me even really trying it was like the Lord just kind of saying, mm. like, I've been with, you know, I've been with you and you haven't even noticed, but I've been with you and, yeah. um, and you know, you're experiencing my joy and peace because, you know, we've had this special encounter here. So Yeah, yeah. it's insane because it's always like, like super subtle, but it leads to big things. Yeah. Um, 
like my favorite analogy is like um elijah when he's he run he just kills all the gods of baal and all that and then his life gets threatened and he runs away and he just mm. kind of like falls asleep an angel wakes him up and gives him some cake three times you know yeah. it's kind of like you know but like his last prayer is like god take my life and it's like mm. you know be careful what you pray for because mm. god is like okay i'm gonna send you to the desert for 40, 40 days and 40 nights whatever it was and yeah it's just that constantly i'm just gonna keep turning up i'm just gonna i'm actually gonna like for me it's like i'm actually gonna say god i'll give this thing a go like it was a yeah. genuine and like it wasn't a big thing but it was a massive thing mm-hmm. spiritually mm-hmm. and um yeah like uh we're we're in the last episode we were talking to uh Matthew Tagan, he was saying how like prayer is an objective reality. Yeah. And so yeah. like it doesn't matter like how badly or how well you say it, it's mm. it's it's having an effect on you. So like just that turning up to mass, mm. which I we, we will get into later because obviously mm. we're gonna be talking about liturgy, but uh, my favorite description of it, and this is how I describe it to everyone who asks me, is is the coming together of heaven and earth. Yeah. And um yeah, it's just yeah, it's beyond words, eh? Mm. Um, I just Indeed. noticed that my uh, you may have seen my fingernail as <laughs> <laughs> my my eldest daughter just um, before bed she wanted her nails done, and then obviously that I just saw it in the corner. Of, I was oh no, oh no! <laughs> People all around the world are going to see that now. Mm. Uh, cool, cool, cool. Live, live Facebook. Cool, cool, mm. cool. Anyway. Um, so um yeah completely lost my train of thought there all oh, right yeah so um yeah that conversion of prayer you mentioned that your mother started out as an anglican but mm-hmm. do you remember much of her life as her being your mother as an anglican or no not really um my parents got married at a time where you know people interfaith marriages weren't um sort of looked upon favorably Um, and I think sort of from what I understand is that initially, um, so my dad did shift work and so sometimes it, or, you know, quite often it fell to my mother to take us children to, to, um, mass on a Sunday. Um, and I think she was also trying to go to her, um, Anglican church as well. And I think it started getting pretty hard and I think, you know, my parents, Perhaps, um, you know, it, it took a bit more effort than perhaps they were willing to give. Um, mm. But I, I believe that um, my papa, so my mum's dad, actually said to mum, look, the, basically the most important thing is that you bring your children up in fa- you know, with a faith and, and you need to maintain your faith. So if that means you need to become a Catholic, then do it. Um, so you know that that's yeah it's a testimony to mm. the faith of my papa and, and granny because mm. you know mm. there was a bit of I suppose the rivalry and all that kind of stuff and but you know he he saw that what was important was that we belonged to a church and mm. and um, invested ourselves in, um, in that church so yeah. um, I think you know for mum it, it wasn't a, a, I think on the level of faith and understanding mm-hmm. she was already pretty catholic and she was i think she was even doing um children's liturgy and stuff like that you know mm-hmm. and uh pretty early on and um but so she went through the rcia process and um, 
But yeah, I think I was about five or six when she became Catholic, so I sort of don't really recall. Right. Much yeah, because yeah, I I heard that like New Zealand uh, used to be quite anti-Catholic uh, in its in its genesis, the beginning of New Zealand, because um, <laughs> the Anglicans got here first or something. Uh, I remember a friend telling me about that in the past. So yeah, maybe there was you know must have been pretty difficult. I mean, I always wonder when I hear about people's like, oh yeah, we got married and then. So I converted because, you know, for the kids and I'm like, because mm. for me, like it was such a, uh, an earth shattering, life changing thing. It's like that description is like, what do you mean? I mean, what? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. like, uh, I suppose, you know, comes in all shapes and sizes. Um, well, I think, you know, it is a, it is a big deal, you know, when your family follows another faith as well. Mm. Um, but yeah. And it doesn't, it's not, it's not always a smooth transition like perhaps my parents went through um, mm. and both families were, you know, um, certainly my grandparents were good friends and um, yeah, it was a good, I, I guess our first ecumenical uh, <laughs> dialogue or something like that, you know? Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was good. And, and I think, yeah, it had an impact certainly on our family life and um, mm. for the better. Oh, yeah. Very good. Well, that's cool. That's a really cool story. I mean, like, and I love, like, I love this part of the podcast because it's just, it's so free and it's always different. Like, there's mm. lots of similarities, but, like, mm. everyone has their own flavor. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always, I've, you know, one thing I've noticed is that, like, even though you've got the concept of, you know, you cradle Catholic and you convert, like, everyone's had, like, a conversion moment. Um, mm-hmm. Bar one person, actually, uh, when I was interviewing Simon O'Connor, he was like, no, nah, I've just always just been Catholic and just really staunch. I'm like, all right. <laughs> save you some right but we're going to be talking about the topic for today is uh well three things uh we're going to start with liturgy we're going to talk about the i like the concept of studying theology and also maybe talking a bit more about you know being a woman in like a kind of male dominated often described as patriarchal hierarchy Mm -hmm. of the church um there's lots of interesting things around that, so hopefully we can get onto it. But um, to start us off, let's ease into it with, you know, what is what is liturgy? <laughs> well, that's not always an easy question. <laughs> well, you know, we, we can, I think you can look at it from different angles. So liturgy is the public worship of the church. So it's the official rubber stamped worship of the church. Okay. Um, so... <clears throat> Uh, liturgical we have liturgical rites so they are particular formulations of um, actions and um, gestures and and texts and things like that um, in order to and the 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 idea of liturgy that it is um, if you look at the Greek origins of the word yeah. and things like that, you know, right? I guess that question so is maybe a bit too broad, eh? <laughs> well, well, it is. So it, it is a work of the people, but but we certainly understand it as being, first of all, the work of God and the people sort of join in with that work of, well, certainly the work of Christ. Mm. Um, and we particularly understand that in, in the Mass. So the Mass is the, the sacrifice of, um, of Christ. Mm. And in a particular way, we enter into that through the various parts of the liturgy, through mm. the word of God, through our gestures and um, our own sort of interior participation as well. 
Because I guess like the thing that I want to get at in this um, episode is more like a few bugbears that I have myself of yeah. um, around liturgy and, and study of theology and stuff. Of like often, uh, it seems it seems that sometimes the liturgy and the study of theology can become like the god the god itself. It becomes like yeah. you know you know oh he stood in the wrong place. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's mm-hmm. the wrong language, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel that um, I kind of I'm, I'm very mixed up in myself because I have these feelings towards liturgy of like, oh, sometimes I just feel like people are too focused on the liturgy and they don't even they're not even praying. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I I really enjoy high liturgy mm-hmm. I, when you know when it's done beautifully. And yeah. um, I haven't quite got round my head around the Latin mass, but like. Uh, mm-hmm. When I when I when I experience a uh, a really well done novus order, I'm, I just I just feel I enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. Although I don't really know what's happening, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. I can see, but like yeah, uh, I don't know the names of everything. Mm. So like I guess um, yeah, that's that's where I'm coming from. Like you know, yeah. so what like what's the point of liturgy? Why do mm. we even need it? Mm. Well, I um, to perhaps. To go back to the Old Testament, I, I often use this, and this is from Pope Benedict as well in his Spirit of the Liturgy. Mm. Um, so he talks about uh, the book of Exodus. And so this is actually really our, our, our model, I suppose, for uh, becoming a people of God and sort of how, how or what a life, uh, the lives of the people of God, like what, what does it need to look like? So we all know the Exodus story, right, with Moses yeah. who gets the Israelites. Uh, it's a kind of a long story, um, but the Israelites are in Egypt and they basically are enslaved and Moses gets sent to the Pharaoh to, by God to ask. So the goal of the, the Exodus is the promised land, right, to go to the promised land. That's what God has in store for the Israelites. But if you actually look at the exchange, the dialogue between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, Uh it's actually about Moses asking that the Israelites can can go out into the wilderness in order to worship God. So the worship of God in the wilderness is like sort of this foundational, is the foundational reason for um, the exodus or for the Israelites wanting to, to leave. And, of course, they have the backwards and forwards for yeah. a while and then plagues come and things like that. And, yeah. and Pharaoh kind of relents a little bit. He says, okay, the men can go, but, you know, the women and children can remain. And so one of the things that keeps coming through is that Moses says, God has asked us to go and worship him in the desert, but we do not know what he, how he is going to ask us to do it, like what that's going to involve. Yeah. So yeah. we all have to go, like, Everyone, uh, all our all our livestock, everything, we all have to go out into the desert because God is going to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. Right. And so obviously we know how the story unfolds and they they, they get out of Egypt. So, so often we think about it as, as being, which is very true, a, um, you know, they're being <clears throat> released from slavery and things like that. Um, but but why does God want them in the desert? And because they walked through the desert for 40 years. Like if you actually look at that part of the world, it's not that big. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it would take them a while to get from Egypt to Israel, but not 40 years. But So why are they there for such a long time? So 
um, after being in the desert for about three months, they, they get to the Mount, Mount Sinai and that's where they get the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the Ten Commandments that they receive there. They enter into a covenant with God. And part of that covenant is about how they are to worship God. So the means by which we worship God are actually given to us by God. So the people of Israel don't just go, oh, we're going to worship God like this. He tells us how we are to worship him. And so our liturgy is the same. So I think, you know, one of the things that I like to, I like to remind myself of and also share with um, those who I'm teaching or talking about the liturgy too, is that it is a gift that we've received from God. Sometimes we get caught up in the fact that, you know, we have to do the rubrics, like, you know, we have to do all this and that and, and, but to receive the liturgy as a gift and that our participation is a gift, that we've been called to do this. And through and through this liturgy, through our participation in the liturgy, particularly the liturgy of the Mass, we are formed as the body of Christ. We are formed as the people of God. Mm-hmm. It's not just that, you know, we're friendly and, and we like the other people that are in the same church as us. It, it's something far than that. We're, we're actually made into Christ's body, which is, if you think about it, it's mind-boggling mm. um, that we become the body of Christ. So so it's always God first and then us second. And whenever you're studying theology and particularly liturgy, it is you have to come from a point of your faith. So if you're just studying theology but you don't have faith, it's just religious studies. Mm. But so... Theology is always, so there's a, a sort of little maxim, I suppose, um, faith-seeking understanding. So that's what theology is. So you mm-hmm. have to, the, it presupposes that you faith and that you're trying to deepen and uncover that faith um, because it is easy for it to just become an intellectual exercise or, you know, um, you, know you just have to write an essay or pass exams or something mm-hmm. like that. But mm-hmm. Um, you ha- it's important to keep coming back to um, actually this is a work of faith and even our participation in the liturgy is a work of faith too, right, that um, we believe in the good news and we are participating in it in a particular way. Um, baptism is a liturgical rite. Baptism is necessary for us to follow Christ, you know, um, so all these things, the, the liturgy, particularly the sacraments, are the means through which we encounter God and that we become disciples. Mm. So that's, and, and of course, you know, if we, if we receive something as a gift as well, if we receive the liturgy as a gift, then we, then we should give our best to it or use it for, for good. <laughs> and I guess perhaps sometimes on a Sunday, um, you know, perhaps the music is somewhat difficult to follow or, um, you know, perhaps the the priest gives a homily that you find hard to find positive points in or mm. something like that. Um, and so sometimes if we sort of get caught up on all that, we mm. forget just, as you said before, that this is heaven and earth coming together. Um, this is heaven lowering itself and earth being raised up, right? And it is a really beautiful um, image to keep in the forefront of your mind. Um, so obviously we need to give our best 
in the liturgy. Mm. Um, our best music, our best vestments. Hopefully, our church is beautiful. We that we beautify our church as mm. much as we can. Um, you know, we can. There's there's things to a certain extent that we can do, um, but but often, you know, we have to allow God to do His work too. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, there's a lot there. I think we could just stop there and let everyone replay that over and over and think it through. Uh, I did have a cheeky question uh, mm. just because I didn't know how to word it. Um, but like it's kind of getting at a few things. As far, I was going to say, when did the church invent liturgy? Um, but you kind of answered it there. It's like uh, we didn't. Uh, yeah. We were given it by God in Exodus, mm. read the Bible. Mm. But that did lead to the question. It's like, okay, so... Um, what was given to the chosen people mm. uh, at Sinai wasn't the Novus Ordo, nor no. was it the Latin Mass. Uh, <laughs> no. So yeah. have we messed it up completely? <laughs> now it's just a bunch of rules and it used to be what yeah. God gave us. How, how does yeah. that work out? So I guess there is sort of the transition from the Jewish liturgy into the Christian one. Mm-hmm. Um, so interestingly, well, I mean, it, it, it makes sense. So the Passover, right, is the liturgical celebration that is the memorial of the exodus from Egypt. And it's like even um, uh, like they were given the, the liturgy, I suppose, or the, what they're meant to do in the Passover while they're still in Egypt. And then commanded to celebrate that every year. And they had this idea that um, of memorial that wasn't just sort of like this kind of intellectual memory of, of something, um, but actually it made present that very sort of saving power that they that they experienced, right? So they have this Passover feast, which is an integral to, to um, Jewish worship. And in that very feast is when Christ, um, I guess, Christianizes uh, the Jewish liturgy, right? So we have the Last Supper, right? So it's smack bang in the middle of the, the Passover feast. Um, and uh, and then he is, um, and he, he connects that with what's going to happen, his crucif- uh, crucifixion. So I guess the, the, the years following these events, you have the, the early church sort of forms this liturgy around those, around what we've been commanded to do. Um, and pretty much the, you know, the whole, you know, the liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist that we sort of talk about, um, those two main parts of the Mass are very much present sort of right at the beginning. Um, but we also under, understand, and this is perhaps something that sometimes is hard to get your head around as well, but that the liturgy is something that's alive. It's not. It's not dead. It's not sort of these, um, and and therefore it's organic. And so um, there is actually a book called The Organic Development of the Liturgy, and it's basically uh, Al Cohen Reed is the author, and basically it is just sort of a, a study of how the liturgy over the last two thousand years has developed. And yes, the church has been given the the mandate to sort of uh, what's the word? Be be a steward of the faith and a steward of the liturgy, and so she, over the centuries, there, there is um, development in, in the liturgy, but it, it needs to be organic. Mm. And perhaps one of the things we struggle with at the moment, um, 
and something I am a big fan of Pope Benedict um, because he spoke a lot about the liturgy. Um, and one of his things was to talk about the hermeneutic of continuity, bit of a mouthful. But basically that what we have now is, is in con continuity with what has gone on before. But sometimes I think how we view perhaps the reform of the liturgy after Vatican II, it's like we had a rupture, like we, we threw one thing out and we brought a new thing in. But in fact, what how we should look at it is like it's it's part of a development, an evolution, perhaps. Mm. Um, so currently, we have two forms of the one right. So we have the um, ordinary form and the extraordinary form. So the Novus Ordo and the Latin Mass, or traditional Latin Mass, whatever um, titles you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of perhaps you know a new thing, um, but both are legitimate. And both are both, I mean, if you go to both, you, because the language is dif different and there's a few things that are different, um, perhaps on the surface you think they're quite different, but in fact they're pretty much the same. There, there, are, there are differences obviously, but mm. you can, you, you can recognise the same things in each. Mm. Um, and I think the language makes it feel quite different. Right. Um, but. Yeah, I think you can sort of. I've only see ever the been to uh, two Latin masses. One was a low low mass, and the other mm -hmm. one was a a high mass, a high sung Latin mass. Mm -hmm. And so I just I they're both very difficult. <laughs> to, yeah. Cause, but I've never just whatever normal one is mid range liturgy. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I've never experienced that. I yeah. tried going to another one once, but I was uh, choked by the amount of incense that was in the oh. chapel. <laughs> So I had to leave because of my asthma. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, yeah, that idea of, I mean, it just baffles me. Like uh, one of the, something I quite enjoy is like typology of like reading yeah. the Old Testament with New Testament eyes kind of thing. Yeah. It just blows my mind. I think yeah. you get that same uh, aspect here uh, with um, the liturgy of, um yeah realizing that it started in exodus because mm -hmm. i think you know myself i often view like judaism over here christianity mm -hmm. and very and then catholicism's within mm -hmm. there somewhere and really it's just um you know we are the the chosen people uh because i remember when i used to run bible studies you'd see that you know god started with uh abraham then it was a family then it was a people and it was a country and then it was everybody mm -hmm. Mm. And we're part of that everybody, mm. uh, which is phenomenal. So mm. um, Jesus brought the liturgy, opened up the liturgy to Christianity, which mm -hmm. is because, like, I guess everything that God reveals to us is interpreted through human eyes. Would you say is that mm -hmm. correct? So, like, it's it's like a, a less perfect version than what. It's limited to the understanding of the practitioners, would you say? Yeah, I, I guess um, anything, everything in the Old Testament, so like the, you know, we talk about the um, the Old Testament and New Testament are, you know, you, you can't have just one or the other. You mm. Like they, the Old Testament kind of leads us into the new and the new kind of, the New Testament kind of helps us understand the old. Because the Old Testament really is about the coming of Christ. Mm. It's it's the the this 
progression of relationship between God and his created, but, but those who he has created, and in order that they might be to receive their salvation, right, the Christ when he comes. And um, so particularly in the prophets, you see that they talk about, you know, all the, the temple worship and stuff, and they, get, and they get in trouble because of this. They basically say that it's this is a good thing, but it's not the be-all and end-all because there's something still to come. The Messiah is still to come. And when the Messiah comes, he will sort of fulfill all this, this worship. So mm. what we have in our liturgy is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it's our so we we look at we we see each other that we're in continuity with you know the Jewish faith in the sense of that's that's been sort of our foundations, um, and with Christ as the fulfillment of what was in the Old Testament. So again, there's sort of no rupture from our point of view. Um, with the with from our liturgy to the Jewish liturgy, it's it's that progression. Um, it's mm. the fulfillment of it. Mm. Yeah. So, what happens if we get it wrong? Because, like, it sounds like lit, what liturgy is is it? It's essentially just it's prayer. Um, but like, I can just pray to God however I want. Mm. You know, I don't need to. I don't need to sit kneel stand. I don't need to. Mm-hmm. On and then there's a whole other question, but I'll get into that in a second. But yeah, so mm-hmm. like, um, what happens if we get it? Does it matter if we get it wrong, or does it matter if we do it a particular way? Look, I think I think it depends on what you mean by wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes we make mistakes in the liturgy. Like, you know, I've I've been to a mess, and the, and the priest has just forgotten to do the the sanctus, the holy holy, right? And we've sort okay. of rolled on through past that and that's just a mistake and like that's and that's unintentional and yeah um to me that is that's nothing like that that's just something not you know not to worry about but if we if we think about the liturgy being a gift and i receive that gift and i and i i receive it as a gift so therefore i i I honor that gift right so there is sort of that i guess that level where and we've seen it perhaps in our lifetime that you know sometimes people decide to make up parts of the liturgy mm-hmm. are we going to do this instead because this has more meaning for us or whatever um now i think sort of that deliberate distortion is not ideal mm. <laughs> um and that's not receiving the liturgy as a gift and it's saying i know better than god basically um, I, I always think if I if I'm trying to conform Christ or the church to me, then there's a problem. I have to conform myself to something, right? So that's part of what conversion is, right? Sort of mm. conforming yourself, the metanoia. I'm, I'm turning away from something and turning towards something. Mm. If I am, if I'm sort of making liturgy in my own image, that's a problem. Um, and I, I, I think we might you might sort of use technical terms like whether a liturgy is valid or invalid or licit or illicit mm. um and it, i don't think it's ideal to go to mass and have your notebook out and um, <laughs> you know you did this wrong and did that wrong but i think there's it's, it's a lot of it is, is about intention so do mm. i intend to enter into this as and and receive it as a gift that from god to me and then offer myself back to god in this 
you know, whether it's mm. what kind of, whatever kind of liturgy you're, you're participating in, but particularly the Mass, yeah. um, since that's the source and summit of our faith. If it's the source and summit of our faith, then I can't make it up. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the purpose of liturgy is a kind of setting us apart. Because, like, like you said, with the dialogue between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh, the whole thing was go out into the wilderness in just like, so that's like the purpose of liturgy is to give us a wilderness to go into, which is, i.e., something that's completely take us out of something that we know completely. Um, yes. yeah, because I've I've heard because obviously I wasn't ar- I wasn't really yeah I wasn't around never mind Catholic when uh, the change from hmm. the Vatican II came along but I was around when uh, the English translation was refined mm-hmm. and that caused a big ruckus mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and like a lot of people saying yeah but people don't use these don't use these words so why mm-hmm. should we use them in a liturgy and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess it's so the purpose of lit- liturgy in a way is to take us out of what we um, are comfortable with or what we recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, two more ideas, questions I've got for you. Yeah. Um, one is so the liturgy of the people in mm-hmm. mass, the, the congregation is sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand, <laughs> go and get the Eucharist, go home. Yeah. Um, it seems like we, you know, liturgy is not really for us. It's for the priest, and we just get to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that true? Would you say? You know? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it looks like yeah. From the outside, it's like yeah. Why am I even bothering thinking about liturgy? Because I don't mm-hmm. have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads into this like uh, phrase I've heard thrown around that like, full participation in the in the mass <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah full conscious active participation yeah. yeah so look we are creatures that have a body and soul right mm. so we have a spiritual dimension but we also have the physical so the physical dimension in liturgy is very important so we we embody something. So in our, in the, the actions aren't arbitrary. So we kneel at times of adoration. Um, we stand as in, in preparation and also standing is, has a, a, an element of honour to it. We speak certain words. We say certain things. Um, we profess what we believe. So we pray the creed. Um, we listen. So, so we use our body in liturgy. And so that's important. Um, but so so we have to engage our body, but we also have to engage our soul, engage engage our spirit, and so that is not necessarily something you see. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, our interior participation. So there's an external participation which is important, but I think the ultimate um, is to engage both exterior and interior. So what are we engaging in, right? Like what are we doing? Well, what mm. what are we doing at the mass, like? What are we celebrating? What are we remembering? What are we talking about? So really, the Mass is a representation of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross at Calvary. So he offers himself to the Father as atonement for us, for us sinners, right? So we get to participate in that by, 
through our actions, through speaking the, the, the words and through our heart being lifted to God, mm-hmm. that we offer Christ at that celebration and we offer ourselves with Christ and say, hey, Father, look what Christ has already done for us and we're going to, you know, jump on his coattails and, you know, reap all the benefits um, <laughs> without having to, you know, die on the cross. Although the cross is the pathway for all of us, right, to heaven. And it looks different for everybody, but for each person, but the cross is certainly unavoidable. Um, so that's what we're doing, particularly at the Mass. And all the other liturgical rites and sacraments connect to that in some way. So the Mass is the central, the source and summit. Mm-hmm. So, and that's really the the the, the um, sort of core of what we believe. That's the good news, right? What's yeah. the good news? That Christ came, that God became man, and He died for us, so that we might know the Father and that we might go to heaven and spend eternity with Him. So that's what we're doing at Mass. It's a it's kind of a um, on earth foreshadowing of heaven. Mm. So. All those little gestures and kneeling and standing, all that's important because it orientates us in a certain way, directs us in a certain way. Um, mm. And that's why nothing in the Mass is arbitrary. I, I often used to have people ask me, you know, oh, so um, how late can I come to Mass and still receive communion, right? right yeah. And, like, it's a fair enough question because sometimes it happens, right, mm. that, you know, maybe you're trying to, corral for children to, you know, to bring to mass or something like that. Um, it happens. You get stuck on the motorway. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I guess my answer was never to say, oh, well, as long as you've heard the gospel, that's fine. You know, you can go on in. But my answer is just like, well, every single aspect of the mass is important. And, mm-hmm. in fact, what I would say is get there 10, 15, 20 minutes, however long beforehand, so that you have time, first of all, just in case you uh, possibly late, like, you know, you've got mm. a bit of a contingency, but that you actually have time to go into the church to collect yourself and prepare yourself. Um, so before Mass starts, you you can be ready to enter into, not just physically, but also um, in your heart as well. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so, I, um, yeah, I think, and, and that also means, you know, some people are just like, oh, well, you know, I remember, um, oh, gosh, this was nearly 20 years ago now. Um, I was a youth worker at a um, parish, and we were doing a fundraiser by um, washing people's cars while they were in mass on, on a Sunday. Um, so <laughs> it was me and other youth group leaders and some of the youth were running around washing cars during mass. And while we were doing that, we came across a, a, an elderly chap sitting in um, his car in the car park. And he kind of said, you know, what are you guys doing? And we explained what we were doing. And I kind of went, and what are you doing? Because this is going on in there and you're sitting in your car. Are you waiting for someone? And he said, I'm just, so where he had parked, he could see into the church and he could tell when people started going up for communion. And so when he saw communion happening, he would get over his car go up, receive communion, come back, hop in his car and go. And I just went, oh, yeah, like that that has sort of uh, stayed with me all that time because it was like this, oh, yeah, like Mass is not just about receiving communion even, right? Mass is about participating in that entire thing. And I thought, oh, man, you've really missed out. Like Jesus wants to come into your heart and into your body 
um, too, but he wants to come to your heart as well. And um, he kind of had, you know, like communion is a very, very precious and wonderful thing and to receive it as often as you can is is to be encouraged. Um, But to receive it in the context of the entire Mass is the ultimate. And so to pursue that is, is important, I think. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember once I was doing a, a session on the Mass for a retreat and I was trying to think of, like, what's the most important part of Mass? And, like, the more I thought of it, I was like, well, if, you know, obviously the Eucharist is really important, but actually, you know, you need the Gospel and then the readings before the Gospel uh, kind of lead into this and the Offertory has this part of it. And, and I was like, actually, the most important part of the Mass is that you turn up. Because yeah. it's like, if you, if you, if you're always missing something. Yeah. And it kind of like, get, you know, getting back to that full participation. And mm-hmm. I guess the the message that we probably want to send across from this episode is that liturgy isn't a set of rules that we must follow, mm-hmm. but um, kind of a natural reaction to the reality of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And... Um, because one of the the most beautiful masses I've been to, I can't remember if it was the liturgy or anything, but it was the mass after I'd been told a story about St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, the story was that he, um, whenever he needed inspirations, he'd go and sit before the tabernacle. If he couldn't get any, he would move closer. He'd even stick his head inside it. And I'm like, this guy <laughs> is literally super intelligent. Like yeah. Even yeah. secular courses uses thinking he wrote a summa theologica super intelligent way way more clever than i am and this guy's sticking his head in a box <laughs> to get inspiration so yeah. another story is that he at the point of consecration he would he would be in tears for the reality of the eucharist and i was like mm. okay at the part at, at the, during the liturgy of the eucharist i was telling myself this is real mm. this is real and she, i could feel the tears coming i was like mm. oh my gosh mm. And so that sit-kneel stand, you know, yeah, it's what you're supposed to do, but it's not, it's not, this is what you have to do. If you don't kneel, then you're doing it wrong. But it's like, this is what you do because this is the natural reaction. Uh, this is the reality before you. And so yeah. this, is, this, is your, this is your physical response to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I once heard that uh, Christianity is uh, the, the natural response to life just as if someone's running at you with an axe the natural response is to step out of the way yeah the same the same case you know mm. kneeling at this point is if we listen to what the what the priest's saying at that point i mean mm. actually think about what it means and you'll mm. fall to your knees mm. you know yeah. Um, yeah but i guess this brings me on to like the study of theology mm. it's uh, like how much do you need to know <laughs> in order to be saved no i'm joking um because <laughs> i i once I, like i had this argument once because I, I was getting really annoyed at people that would just start quoting theologians as kind of dropping bombs on you so like oh i think this is like oh yeah what thomas aquinas says oh yeah what's in augustine it's like okay yeah. okay okay you can quote some big texts and drop some big names but mm. like have you just memorized text or do you know what it means mm. and yeah. so i was i was for a while i was like the, theology is not necessary for your salvation hmm. and that was me and I was like now I'm kind of like oh is that just being lazy <laughs> so like um when it comes to studying theology what do you know 
don't want to say what's the bare minimum, but like, what's you know, is it necessary <laughs> in order Look, to? I, I think I think it was it, if faith is important to you. I think it is normal that you might want to discover more about your faith. So you might read books on spirituality on. Um, you know, you just do your own personal study, you know, you might read books on liturgy, on, mm. on theology, on moral theology, on, on um, uh, philosophy even. It's often helpful. Um, so I think, you know, I think human beings, we like to understand things. And so I think it's quite natural that someone who has a, a faith might like to pursue that. And to be fair, like, the, that teacher of theology is the Holy Spirit, right? So, you know, there, there's an element of we just, and, and theology is about discovering who God is and who he is in relation to me and the rest of the world. Who am I in God, right? Mm. I, I, and you can kind of, I guess, um, yeah, take that deeper and deeper and deeper and, but as I said before, you know, like it, it always has to start from a point of faith. Mm. I'm doing this because I want to understand my faith. Um, I got into theology because, uh, into studying theology, like formally, because first of all, I was wanted to know things. And also I, I felt um, perhaps a calling to enter into sort of um, formation and education in the church. And I thought, well, I probably should know something about my faith if I'm going to be maybe helping others to discover, you know, the teachings of the church or, you know, things like that. So that's kind of how I got into it. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's always been, I think it has to be, whatever you study, I think you have to be passionate about it and be really interested in it. I want to, I want to get to the bottom of this. I want to, I want to know what, what the Eucharist is. And you don't have to get a theology degree to do that, but you might want to read it. A spiritual work or a mm. theological book or um, something like that. Um, actually, you know, like a really good place to start is someone like Scott Hahn or, you know, like he, mm. he just has some really good books that are really accessible. They're not, um, like I've tried, attempted to read some theological books and I'm just like I cannot understand this person. So, you know, like not everyone is understandable. I think it's a real gift to be able to write something that, mm helps people to really engage with the particular topic um mm. so i think you know maybe you don't do a degree in theology but do you want to find out more about your faith yes i think mm. that's a good thing yeah and that's a great thing that you know podcasts are good for um because yeah. you know i don't i'm dyslexic so reading's not my forte and Absolutely. I, re- I recently got diagnosed with adhd so sitting down doing nothing's not gonna happen either um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like yeah i guess so would you, I suppose studying of theology has to be a, it's an intention thing. So it's like, you should, would you say, you shouldn't study theology if the reason you're studying theology is to win arguments, but you should study theology because you want to get to know God more. Yeah, yeah. I think that's far more noble. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you might want to, um, be able to, if you understand your faith better, perhaps you can share it more widely. You know, yeah. you, you, um, I tell you what, actually, I, like I've spent a lot of time, you know, perhaps doing 
teaching, you know, teaching people who already have faith. But um, I've been involved with RCIA for the last two or three years and sharing the faith and, and like an element of formality, you know, we go through the Old Testament and the various sort of, you know, salvation history and all that kind of stuff and what the sacraments are and, and sharing that with people who just have a, a little seed of faith because they do, they do already have faith because that's why they're coming to RCIA. But, mm. you know, like it, it, it's, a, it's a different, it's a, a real different kind of um, work. And, you know, it doesn't really, I mean, it's good if you've read theological books and things like that, but to be able to share your faith with anybody is a, is a real, like, that's not always easy, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, different context requires perhaps a different kind of sensitivity or something like that. Um, mm. So, yeah. Because yeah. um, I, I think, think it, sorry, carry on. Sorry. Well, the mission of Evangelion is sharing the truth in love. And so um, would you say that your theological knowledge has helped you to do that? Because really what we want to be able to do is through things like this podcast, the blog, the conferences that we run is to give people the tools or at least point them in the right direction. It's like, okay, I want to evangelize my family. I want to evangelize my friends. I want to evangelize the person sitting next to on the bus. It's like, what do I need to read? You know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I suppose, how is studying theology different to sharing faith and how does it benefit and how does it maybe pull it back a bit? Look, I think studying theology can, certainly if you study it from a point of wanting to deepen your faith, because really when we talk about sharing faith, we're talking really about being a witness. So one is a witness by the way that they live, by the way that you live, and not just about what you say. I mean, um, you might have all the, the right sort of, um, uh, slogans or whatever to say, but but it always um, it, it's it's kind of how you live and how you direct your life and what you direct it towards that really I think um, witnesses the faith to other people, um, and that in, that can be helped by learning more about the teachings of the church and understanding them better, and um, you know reading spiritual works, you know of from various saints, like how they lived their faith, um, you know, can be really, um, really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I found it helpful to perhaps have a bit of understanding of, um, you know, different authors and, um, you know, maybe different saints who might have, might be helpful for people, various people in various situations, mm-hmm. you know, like being able to point them towards, hey, you know, I read this book, um, you know, someone who suffers from anxiety or something. There's a really beautiful book about um, searching for and maintaining peace by Father Jacques Philippe, which is just this tiny little book, but it's just filled with like these amazing gems of just how to really connect with God so that you can experience his peace in your life, even with the turmoil, right? But I never would have found that out if I hadn't perhaps, you know, been on a bit of a journey. Um, So perhaps, you know, I can point people in that direction. Mm. I don't, I I think it's one of those things whenever you study anything, the more you study, the more you realize you don't know. Mm. So often my experience of studying theology is going oh, you know, like I'm really only brushing the surface here and it feels like it's going to, it's the work of my life, not to study theology necessarily formally for my life, but 
to learn more about God. And that's, that's yeah. what I hope that the rest of my life will look like. So would you say like the, the study of theology has given you a library that you can then lend out to people and so to speak? Of... <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Literally yeah. And, and figuratively, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I th- yeah, I think it's like it's just equipping yourself. But uh, I suppose the the purpose of theology um, is to uh, discover God. And I suppose that, yeah, it needs to come from a personal place first so then it can be become a public place um later mm-hmm. um yeah so i guess you know that's a really cool point and like i think so because i was going to ask you about like um your experience of being a woman in a you're studying theology and uh you know in a, in a catholic world is predominantly male um but i think i suppose when you put it like that, when you talk about the study of theology isn't to be a theologian, it's to, you know, discover God for yourself. And then, you know, as it says in the scripture, there is no male or female, there is no Gentile or Jew, Mm. you know, there's just those of us seeking God. Mm. Uh, And, you know, that really just knocks, you know, makes that question seem fairly redundant. Um, But I suppose, you know, we are human and we are in the world. And, mm. you know, have you experienced, how has your experience of being a woman in a, in a male-dominated uh, place, would you, or, and do you feel like women have something to offer that men don't and aren't given the opportunity to uh, in the hierarchy, in mm-hmm. the running of parish life, et cetera? Mm. I think... Um, Look, my experience of studying theology and having opportunities to to do that um, has been great. Like, I've been supported by various um, parts of the church to do that um, and and been encouraged to do that um, by members of the hierarchy. Um, when I was studying in Rome and because especially in my the classes, particularly about liturgy, um, I was often the only woman um, and often in a room full of priests or deacons <laughs> or seminarians. Um, but I, I, I never felt, I mean, you know, maybe there's a little bit of you that kind of goes, Ooh, you know, <laughs> um, but I, I, I only ever received kindness and certainly I needed a lot of help with, people who had a better grasp of Italian than me. Mm. And um, certainly when it came around to exam time, you know, I was often part of a, a study group or, you know, that we shared notes with. Or, mm-hmm. um, and I was very grateful for that. Um, and I've had um, job opportunities within the church. Um, and to be fair, like, you know, um, perhaps in academia or parts of academia, um, there are more males because perhaps there are because traditionally priests and, and actually religious, so nuns and brothers and you know, they were the ones that did the teachings, right? They were the ones who studied theology and so um, they were the ones who also taught at universities and things like that. But that's definitely changing. Um, there's definitely a lot more lay people um, give, you know being given that opportunity or taking mm-hmm. the opportunity. Um, 
So, yeah, so I think it's it's perhaps a slightly different sort of environment from a few years ago, but I've, I've never experienced, I, the, I think the only sort of real conflict I've experienced is more about sort of differences in theological opinion. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, whether um, I was thought to be a bit too conservative or traditional um, to the liking of, of someone else. So um, yeah. it was less about my gender and more about, Perhaps my uh, particular theological leanings, but um, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's like you know, um, good for people to hear because you know, obviously you're being taken seriously as an academic enough to the point where someone would actually debate you and not write you off as, "Oh, here's a woman; she doesn't know theology." Yeah, no, I've never haven't experienced that at all. Certainly not in my theological studies. I see. Um, I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did have another question, but it's left my mind. Uh, so I guess I'll see if there's any questions on the old Facebook. Um, let's see if I can find that out. I'm still quite new to all this, so I'm working it out. Um, we've had a few comments. Amen. Get him, Anna. Uh, <laughs> here we are. David Smith on Facebook mm. says, do you pray the liturgy of the hours? Mm. I, I don't um, pray them on a regular basis, um, mm-hmm. but I have um, certainly prayed them when I've been on retreat or mm. um, certainly, and I think you've been to Hearts of Flame, haven't you, Dom? And, have, you yeah. know, that's where I was first introduced. And, in fact, that was really where my love of liturgy really started to develop was Hearts of Flame and praying the um, the prayer of the church and mm. um, and the beautiful liturgy that um, was there, music and lots of really amazing priests sharing every day and things like that. So, um they they are a very beautiful um, liturgical prayer that mm. can be done every day, and I think when you pray them, uh, and also that they you know every day there's perhaps certain aspects of the salvation history that are brought out in the liturgy, and so the prayer of the church also has real connections with what we're hearing and, and praying in mass and things like that. Mm. I suppose that leads me to another question of, um, you know, faith, I mean, liturgy, does it exist outside of the Mass, would you say? Faith? No, no, liturgy, sorry. I got, um, um, like, faith obviously does. Like, so, like, (laughs) because we've talked a lot about liturgy in the Mass and, like, our participation in the liturgy in that sense. But, you know, when we leave the church after mass go forth the mass is ended is there any is, is that where liturgy ends and then see you next sunday uh well i guess technically there are liturgical rites in the church that are they're the public worship of the church so they include the sacraments and and a myriad of other liturgical rites um uh that one can participate in them um so if one is, you know, in your home and um, perhaps like the rosary isn't liturgy, but it's a beautiful prayer. And so the church actually talks about sort of the relationship between 
liturgy and sort of personal devotions or and personal prayer and how they inform and complement one another. And so, you know, we shouldn't just go to Mass on a Sunday and then not pray at all during the week. But, you know, our prayer should flow out from our participation in the Mass and other liturgical participations. But And our daily prayer, hopefully, if we have that opportunity, should also help us to enter more fully into the Mass So um, and other liturgical rites we might find ourselves participating in. So there is a, a, you know, a very nice interaction between what we're doing inside the church and then how what we do outside, um, and they hopefully sort of encourage and inform each other, right? Um, mm. I think that's that's how I like to look at it. Um, mm. uh, so they, our our prayer outside the church or outside the liturgy should, you know, help us to participate better. Mm-hmm. in the liturgy and in the liturgy our participation in liturgy should help us galvanize us to to pray more and yeah, okay more okay it's mm. cool uh so we have another question here from sarah i'm gonna say petrucelli sorry if i got that wrong sarah uh can you explain how the eucharist isn't symbolic i'm new to the faith she says mm. Yeah, look, this is a this is a very mysterious aspect of our faith that we believe that the bread and wine become the body and blood, soul and divinity, of of Jesus, and um, that we don't just think it's a symbol, um, but we think it is what we say it is. Or, you know, it, it does become his his body and blood. Um, uh, so we really sort of get this um, teaching from Christ himself. So at the Last Supper, he takes the bread, he gives thanks, and he says, this is my body, which is given for you, and this is my blood, when he takes the chalice. And so we, we understand from the early church that the apostles understood him to be being literal, you know, like mm. this really is. And so... That has been an understanding from day one, right? It's not under something 500 years later we went, oh, right, you know, it really is the body and blood of Christ. And, but that is obviously, it's not, it, it's a very mysterious and not an easy thing to understand because obviously it still looks like bread and still tastes mm. like bread and still looks like wine and tastes like wine. And, um, and you know, how can this happen? And, um, so it is something, it is, a, it is a, an article of faith, obviously, so it's something we, we believe without seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically it has its foundations in what Christ says at the Last Supper and, and that is kind of in culminates in his um, death on the cross. Um, and, yeah, it, it's kind of, it's always been held by the church but over time, the church has sought to understand and articulate um, sort of a deeper understanding. Or um, so we have words like transubstantiation and things like that, which you know um, are terms used to describe what what happens. So trans, which is talks about change, and substantiation, so change in substance. 
Um, so what we understand to change is what it is, not what it looks like, so to speak, mm. um, or tastes like. Um, and these are philosophical terms and they are sort of created in order to explain a very deep and difficult mystery. Um, but I think it's one of those things that is something that you grow to know in your practice of the faith mm. and especially your time in the mass. And certainly, you know, if it's something you struggle with and can't get my head around this and, or, you know, um, uh, certainly asking the Lord to help you understand mm. it is a good place to start. Um, and, yeah. The Lamb Supper is a good book. Scott Hahn talks about the Eucharist mm -hmm. um, and sort of gives its kind of how it comes out of the Old Testament and how we, yeah, mm. continue to understand it. Mm. Yeah, I recommend that Lamb Supper. Very good. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is I suppose this is where like theology and faith come in. Like, because if you just study theology, you've missed the point. If you do like, like I say, if you do it without faith, it's like, well, I mean, you know it's this it's just a character in a book it's like english literature for you mm. um but like um yeah i can contest that for my my I, well i can i can support what you're saying from my own experience um you know i was presented with you know the famous scripture john chapter six the bread yes. of life discourse that's always a very good yes. one mm -hmm. and like it's very plainly written out and there's lots of like commentary on that that just mm -hmm. it really, it really, it's irrefutable that Jesus was saying, "The bread is my body, mm. and you're going to eat it." <laughs> you know, yeah. and the same about the blood. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's not where we come to know the truth of the Eucharist. I guess where we come to know the truth of it is in that relationship with God. Like uh, that story I was telling you about with Saint Thomas Aquinas. Mm. You know, mm. seeing his experience with the Eucharist. And then asking myself in that same moment, like, is this real? You know, mm. or telling telling myself it's real, fake it until you make it. And then <laughs> that opens a door. It's like, this is real. It's like, and then, oh my goodness, it really is real. I can see it, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess it's the, the marrying together of those two things. We've got another question here from Emilio Torres. And what has he said? He said, uh, thank you for offering your time, both of you. If you have time to take this one, what have been, from among the theologians you've read, the most beautiful descriptions of our search of God, of God's search for us? Mm. Yeah. Well, there are quite a few. <laughs> um, look, I'm a big fan of Pope Benedict. Like his books on the Jesus of Nazareth, those three volumes, are really beautiful. And I think, yeah, you, you sort of read his stuff and you get a sense of how he has really come to know Christ um, and perhaps understands the human heart and its, and its search and its struggle for, um, for understanding and meaning and things like that. Um, oh, here's another one. Also thinking, um, one that I only really discovered in the last year or so is, I don't know if it counts as a theologian, but C.S. Lewis is Narnia. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's like, I was, I always ignored C.S. Lewis because I was like, he didn't become a Catholic in the end. He failed. Um, but then I was like, 
I was like, you know, what? actually, everyone goes on about. I'm going to read Narnia, and like every page is just yeah. gold as explanation yeah. of like just faith. I just loved it. Eh? Yeah, yeah. I particularly like. I love. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I haven't read them for a while, actually, and I was sort of thinking. So the last book, the last battle, it's called, mm. um, and that description of. Um, it's been a while since I've read it, so my memory might be a little bit incorrect, but sort of the where all the creatures of Narnia basically come into that stable and they gaze, they look at Aslan, so he's meant to be Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And they look at him, they gaze at him, and then they go one way, onwards and upwards, which is, I guess, the, the heavenly realm, mm-hmm. and then I can't remember the obviously the sort of the hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, man, very profound books and certainly, yeah, something to inspire faith and um, yeah, I'm trying to think of another theologian. Oh, he's a, he's a great one. And um, even his um, his other works, um, story of his conversion and things like that, really powerful. Um, look, I do quite like some of the liturgical um, writers from last century, um, Romano Guabini, um and um, oh, Louis Boyer, he's pretty cool. Um, he talks about, I think this is the Bible and the liturgy. Let's get mixed up, um, which is really special. Um, actually, this I sort of more recently discovered um, Sofia Cavalletti, who is an Italian woman. She's actually a, a scholar, of, a, a biblical scholar. She's passed away now. Um, but she developed a program of formation um, of children in the faith um, called Pieces of the Good Shepherd. But she's written a number of really beautiful books, um, particularly about the child and the relationship with God, but mm. um, certainly they can be very interesting for an hour as well. Um, and, you know, she sort of talks about the theology, like she knows scripture very well. And um, and sort of her uncovering of some of the mm. really crucial parts of scripture um, were really lovely. Yeah. Mm. Well, what we'll do is because um, I, I I bet you when we leave this conversation, you like, oh I should have said this guy. You can just <laughs> you can just send me a list of books that um, you would recommend people could read on their journey of faith, and I'll post it on our on our Facebook page and put mm-hmm. it in our email um list so if you haven't signed up to evangelion.co.nz do subscribe and you'll get all our uh, newsletters and updates and such like um so we'll put it on there uh, i guess another good uh, book or you know, few books to to read to learn about the like um description of our search for god is you know of course the bible mm-hmm. um <clears throat> and like i think one of the, the best things that ever happened to me was I run a Bible study for about two or three years when I was at chaplaincy and like that journey into the scriptures and like reading all the commentaries and listening to podcasts in order to deliver something to other people just really, um, yeah, it really, uh, formed me in, in, in a way of like an understanding that, mm. you know, we are a people of God and not just a, a stale church that has a bunch of rules that we have to follow. Yeah. Uh, I mm-hmm. think we've got one more question. I'll make this the last one because mm-hmm. it's getting late. Uh, we've gone well over 
what we usually go on, but you're just so interesting, Anna. Um, <laughs> so it's, 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 we're back from Sarah. I'm, I'm just going to call you Sarah because I don't want to butcher your name again. Um, she says, why is the rosary so important? Mm, it's a good oh. question. Mm. I like to think, um, so one of the things that scripture tells us about Mary is that um, Mary ponders things in her heart, right? So all these events that happen, you know, the, I was been doing a little, um, uh, some sessions with um, some children of, uh, some uh, about Advent and we've been looking at the infancy narratives and you know, the Annunciation and Visitation and the birth of Christ and the shepherds coming in. And, you know, all these things happen and then the scripture sort of says, and Mary pondered all these things in her heart. And I think rose, the rosary is, is a way of entering into that work of Our Lady that she just, it's like she sits and contemplates the, you know, the Christ, basically, mm. so the various aspects of, of his life. So I think the rosary is important because we, that's, that's our way of entering into that with Our Lady um, so we're also asking for her intercession, of course, but also we sit with her and ponder those things, of the, those moments in Christ's life. Um, and, you know, hopefully they're things that we learn to meditate on and contemplate and sort of, yeah, learn more about them as we mm. go yeah, I, I, I echo those sentiments. Um, again, the, the rosary has been a, a, a rocky journey for myself because I um, obviously been a convert when I was in my 20s. Um, <laughs> I was part of the Catholic Society and every before every meeting we'd pray a rosary and I was like, well, I guess I'm Catholic. This is what I do now. <laughs> um, and like I was like, the rosary doesn't make sense. It's like for Hail, it's like a lot of, it seems like a prayer to Mary, but mm. you know, it's meant to be to God and like you mentioned Mary what, 50 times every rosary and but then it was one of those things that I was challenged as like <clears throat> we when I joined the volunteer missionary community in London called Spec we did it once a week and they were said um this is a prayer to God and I was like okay if this is a prayer to God I'm use it hmm. and so I started praying for people and miraculous things were happening for people I was praying for so I was like oh well, that's cool so obviously it works and then like the more I've prayed it and actually thought about like listen to the mysteries and started putting myself in those pieces of scripture it's like it's made amazing revelations on just the the history of salvation um so like I can't recommend it enough but again it's like that it's like uh with you know God slowly working away at you you know you start coming back to mass and then it led to that decision to actually pray uh, you know the conversion of heart is like it's the same with me it's like mm. it is an objective reality prayer so mm. doing this is actually having an effect on you whether you see it or not and mm. you might just feel like you're falling asleep and eating cake like elijah but eventually mm. something's going to hit you and you're going to be like right let's let's you know experience god in the still small voice so mm. Mm. on the one hand it's not important i guess it's a devotion mm. if you don't pray the rosary you know, you're not going to hell or anything, but yeah. on the other hand, it is, it's an amazing prayer. It, mm. it seems boring on the outside and a bit long and arduous, but if you have that disposition of entering into prayer mm. with it, man, it can, it can rock your world. And I think just to conclude this episode, 
I think that is the the takeaway um, with liturgy, mm. uh, with theology, um, with devotion. It's like on their own, who needs them? But realizing the reality of that liturgy was given to us by God in the chosen people of Israel in the Exodus. And it, it has developed organically into what we experience now today. Um, pray the liturgy. Don't just follow liturgy. Read, uh, become a theologian, not for the title, but for the experience of knowing God more. And follow devotions like the rosary, like the chaplet, like the liturgy of the hours, not because it looks good or because, you know, you're uh, doing something proper, but do it because it's a movement of the heart. Mm-hmm. In that book you mentioned um, by Pope Benedict or Ratzinger as he was then, Spirit of the Liturgy he talks about prayer being play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, but it's already mm. an hour and a half. <laughs> and I think that that's just that concept of like, you know, kids enter into play because it's, it's, it's not no purpose, but there's, there's so invested in it. There's so much meaning and we got to bring that faith into these things that on their own would be lifeless, I guess. Um, but yeah, have you got anything to add to that, Anna? No, I think you've summed it up nicely, Dom. Thank you very much. <laughs> so uh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate the conversation. Um, and thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Curiously Catholic. If you enjoy this episode, you can find us on all major podcasting apps and obviously Facebook Live. So please do subscribe, rate us, leave a comment because that really does help our mission. We want more positive reviews. If you don't like us, don't review us at all. Um, also remember that this is an Evangelion production. So um if you want to get involved with us do check us out on evangelion.co.nz and sign up um to get involved and find out what's going on in the future 